Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Education. Today, I'm speaking with Tom Mullaney, professor of history at Stanford University, and Chris Ray, professor of Asian studies at the University of British Columbia, about their new book, Rare Research Begins, Choosing a Project That Matters to You and the World, from the University of Chicago Press. Rare Research Begins is organized like a workbook. Its purpose is to help people especially students, discover and prep for an in-depth research project. Tom and Chris give special attention to all the necessary steps that come before writing, breaking these steps down into specific and actionable tasks. Professors and teachers looking to help their students will find this book incredibly fruitful. Tom and Chris, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Caleb. Of course. You know, this is an extremely useful book, so... I'm really excited to get into some of the tips that you have. Uh, I think that especially for our listeners, this is just the perfect resource. So before jumping into the book, I'd just like to know if you can both tell me a little about yourselves and how you met. Uh, Why don't we start with you, Chris? Yeah, so I uh, was born in California. I did my uh, PhD in Chinese studies at Columbia University. And it was there that Tom and I met. He was in history and uh, East Asian studies. And we were assigned to teach a course together, not as teaching assistants, but kind of as sole instructors, different sections of the same course on research methodology. And we had never met before. The, the course was supposedly taught by an instructor, but actually the, <laughs> the graduate students did all of the teaching. And we essentially designed this course ourselves. We met uh, every week to discuss how things were going you know, using our joint syllabus, but teaching separately. And uh, it was a, I guess, life-changing experience, you could say. It really taught us a lot about uh, research and, and what it's about. But yeah, I'm someone who is originally, you know, not a, an expert in research methodology. I was interested in Chinese literature and cinema. So that's a lot of what I still do research on. But I've been very, very interested with kind of grappling with this problem that has lasted for 20 years, like throughout my career of how do you start a research project? This is something that my students deal with. And it seems like a really evergreen issue for anyone who's in a research field. Yeah. um, The, for myself, uh, I was, I'm an East coaster. I was born in, on the East coast, but made my way after grad school at Columbia um, to California. So now I'm, I'm, been on the faculty at Stanford for amazingly for 16 years, I think it is, which is pretty strange to think. Um, but you know, the same as Chris, it, it you know, there, the idea of writing a research how to guide was probably the farthest thing from my mind. It was not, you know, I, I love talking about research. Like I know Chris does with colleagues and students or something, just talking shop about how it is that we go about producing knowledge and all of the, you know, the, the, the real human story that is all knowledge production. 
But the idea of sitting down and trying to capture something like a a theory and a practice of it is is really not didn't come natural. And we, uh, you know, over the course of my gosh, uh, over a decade, actually, it was about 15 years. This book took us about 15 years to write. I did a calculation on how many months each each word of the book uh, took. I, I don't know where that calculation is somewhere in my notes. But um, we would meet and we basically just couldn't get over the fact that that course back at Columbia had completely failed. And uh, so we, 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 we spent all this time as grad students perfecting this course trying to lead students step-by-step step through literature review and refining and narrowing down a topic and uh, you know, moving section by section, taking notes, et cetera. And what we discovered quite quickly is that despite all our efforts, you know, somewhere in the order of half of the students or more, um, 75% of the students were kind of like sitting on the bench in the train station as the train was leaving. And we didn't know why. I mean, they were brilliant. They're interested. This was, uh, but there was something about that negative one moment in a research process, like the part of research that begins before research begins in some weird way that there was, that something wasn't working. And uh, we spent a long time trying to figure out what that was. And we hit upon the realization that research guides as they exist, many of which we deeply admire, Umberto Eco, The Craft of Research, they kind of start in the middle of things, but they pretend to start at the beginning. And, and, um, and many classes on research actually expect their student to have done a tremendous amount of work on their own with no guidance. And basically, week one of any research course that I've ever seen and that we actually designed and failed to uh, pull off really started in the middle of things. So we said, you know, Chris and I were like, what if we try to write down how one gets to step one of research? Um, and we, we realized that there was nothing out there that walked students in any sort of systematic way to realizing what exactly it was that they were truly concerned about, what what their question, what their problem really was, and that was the that was the birthplace of the book. Why did you decide to create this as a workbook? Can you talk a little bit about the format and structure of the book? Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll start I can start. Um, well, the the idea here is. This is not meant this book is not meant to be a philosophical treatise that one, you know, just picks up and thinks about and puts down. Uh it's it's a cookbook. You know, you can't learn how to cook French cuisine or Thai cuisine by reading and just imagining what it tastes like and imagining what heat does to the <laughs> to the to to you know to the ingredients. Um you have to do it. And that there is this know-how and this tacit knowledge which comes out of getting on the field of play, getting in the ring, um, getting in the kitchen, whatever your metaphor is. And that's where, uh, very importantly, that's where the, the fundamental first challenge of research has to be solved, which is figuring out what it is that one is actually working on as a researcher. So, you know, we, we talk about this a good, a good deal in the book, but to summarize it, all researchers, whatever their stage in life or career, uh, 
you know, we tend to start with these broad topics. We, we, we tend to express our concerns as, oh, I'm interested in environmental history, or I'm interested in, uh, you know, race and technology, or I'm interested in this or that. <clears throat> and these are topics. These are like sections of bookstores, sections of libraries. But the problem is, is that when you articulate your research concerns in that way, you, you have almost said nothing about what you're really doing. Because I could say to you, hey, I'm working on the economic history of the Soviet Union. Um, and there could be literally an infinite number of ways in which a person could be studying the economic history of the Soviet Union. And what is more is that if you were to randomly choose two different pathways of studying economic history in the Soviet Union, they might be mutually um, painfully boring. Like someone could say, I'm interested in economic history of Soviet Union. Uh, and th that could mean that they're interested in X or they're interested in, in gamma. Uh, and yet X and gamma could be, couldn't be further apart from each other uh, on, on the map of research. And, uh, and so what we as researchers have experienced firsthand and what we've seen with many of our students is that the students get caught, they get trapped in this, this world of topics. We call it topic land. And they just wander like hungry ghosts for all eternity, confused how it can be that they have a topic and yet they're so lost. And in every conversation with faculty, in every conversation with students, they have to hide in their innermost recesses of their soul just how lost they really are. Um, every book they read, every article they read, 90% of them actually have nothing to do with their real concern, even though topically they are on, 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 you know, on point. So our whole book is like, we've, you've got to work through a series of processes and you really have to write things down, take track, keep track, keep notes. Um, we call it self-evidence. You have to produce this evidence that helps you get at what is at the core of your work. And for that reason, it can't just be a thought exercise. You really have to put pen to paper, fingers to keys and start producing a record. Uh, Chris, what do you think? And we, we've essentially been workshopping a lot of these exercises over the past 10 or so years at, in our respective courses, you know, with large enrollment courses, with small enrollment courses in different fields. Uh, and we, when we were drafting with this book, a really important part of the drafting process, and I would go down to the Bay Area, you know, year after year, we'd meet for a few days and uh, thrash out our manuscript and our ideas but once we were at a point where we had a number of these exercises ready, uh, we convened um, two sessions of a full day workshop at Stanford where we just put out an open call. Like we didn't know who was going to show up, um, graduate students, undergraduates. It was open to everybody for a free workshop where we just had them try out these exercises. And part of the reason we did that is because of this kind of teaching conundrum that I think is really common to a lot of people of, there are some questions you just cannot answer for your individual student. Like they really have to come up, make the decision themselves. So you can guide them in all types of ways. But I think we've all had the frustrating experience of, they say, I'm interested in topic X. And you say, oh, well, here are five books on, you know, and articles on topic X. But you, you and they still are kind of lost uh, within that topic. And so the exercises are really meant to break through that boundary and to get at the problem. And so it's something that is, is very nuts and bolts. 
And it's we call the exercises try this now because we know that some exercises will work for some people and not for other people. And so you try various ways at getting at the problem. In the introduction, you have a little manifesto that you called the self-centered research uh, project. Uh, you call it the self-centered research uh, a manifesto, and it's a, a an approach that you advocate for. Uh, I was wondering, Chris, if you could maybe tell talk a little bit about what this approach is. There was a, a, a period when we were thinking of actually calling the book self-centered research because this philosophy is um, so core to uh, the project as a whole, and it's it's behind all of these practical exercises. And this is the notion that um, at the end of the day, I guess you could say, we all have, you know, as individual researchers, a responsibility to choose our own path and choose what interests us. And that you really need to do this introspective work even before you go out into the general field of research. And that um, the problem that we see happening again and again is whatever field you're in, that field has plenty of authorities. It has you know, ad advisors, professors, journals, their protocols. Um, and a lot of these, the advice that you will get from those sources is really, really valuable. But it is something that often doesn't take into account the individuality of the particular researcher. And so there does have to be kind of an introspection and a self-accounting that takes place. Um, before you really can head, you can really choose your direction. And so we, we use the term self-centered knowing that it could be misinterpreted, that people might hear that means like conceited or that it's me search, right? That it's just like autobiographical research. But actually we, we believe the opposite, that if you do have a center, then, and it's a center that's mobile, it's not like a defensive fortification, then you can view and understand the problems you find in other people's research with more equanimity, that you become actually more open-minded, but you will also be somewhat insulated from all of these external voices sharing their good ideas and, and telling you um, what to do, that you can then make a much more judicious selection based on your true interests. And Tom, I think, is really, we, we need to hear about from Tom on this too, because he was really the progenitor of this um, coining. Yeah, I, I think a story with a, there's a story in the book, but I, I will maybe hopefully leave that to readers uh, to, to discover. It's the, this example of a student coming to my office hours and in, in history of modern China and, you know, telling me that they wanted to write a paper on feng shui, on geomancy and walking through it. But I, I actually have a more recent story because it comes up all the time. Uh, I had a class just last year and uh, had a student, not my student, works with someone else. Um, so I had no prior knowledge of their of their work. And I and they said, listen, I'm, I'm interested in understanding uh, California during the Civil War. And I'm interested in understanding the history of pro-secessionist Californians at this time. And I was like, okay, um, great. You know, and, and generally, this is how I start most of my conversations saying like, I know how I think that's interesting, uh, but you know what's in this for you? Uh, you're, you're no, you know, uh, did a great 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 grandfather, f you know, fight in this uh, in this particular thing? Is there a what is the horse in in this race? Because the first the starting point in that conversation 
is not to instantly start recommending articles and books and just sort of take, you know, almost fall for the trap of staying in topic land. You got to spend some time to say, okay, you're a really smart individual. You go out into this world, you're bombarded with stimuli. What is it about this particular set of stimuli that like jumped at you? Why do you want to spend any of your time on this? And it always goes the same way, which is the first instinct. And totally understandably, this is what I would do too. They try to make an historiographic case. They basically try to talk the talk. Uh, well, there's a there's a debate within the literature about X, Y, or Z, or this is a this. And, and it's like, okay, that's great. That's all fine and good. But you could have done that you know, little exercise in demonstrating your historical prowess with any topic that you've given me. Because again, you're really smart. You, you, you know, you, you've got it going on. That's not what I'm after. Like, why this one? Long story short, we literally got down to a conversation about dinnertime fights over, in essence, I would say the Trump era and, and massive differences, political differences in the family uh, between different parts of the family and like, and so basically what we're talking about here is uh, a Thanksgiving dinner, let's say, I don't know if it was actually Thanksgiving, but, and, and, you know, suddenly we are in this raw, personal centered place, which is in fact, the origin point of the desire to spend a year or two years on a particular subject matter. So again, kind of like Chris said, you know, the goal is never to write, okay, this is, I'm going to write a thesis where I reflect on how I feel in 2022 about, you know, Californian secessionists. Um, no one wants to read that, um, nor should anyone, but rather it's an awareness that me as a researcher, as a human being walking this earth, the reason I gravitate towards this is because I have a particular problem with this. And being aware of what that problem is, and problem, you know, the way Chris and I talk about it in the book, is is kind of like a, a, a persistent uh, psychic irritant that follows you um, when you go to bed at night, when you brush your teeth, and also when you go to the archives or when you go to the field or when you go into the laboratory. It, it, it's a human thing. And the reason why it's so valuable to actually be aware of that is that when you sit down with someone and say, hi, I want to study California during, during you know, secessionists in California uh, during the Civil War, when that other person starts suggesting readings or articles or start making guesses about what it is that you're studying, kind of like that example before, if I study the economic history of the Soviet Union, that you as the researcher will be, you'll have, you'll have a center of gravity. You'll have your, your feet right, you know, your center of gravity right, right over top of your feet. And you will be able to say with a, with a degree of awareness, I hear what you're saying, interlocutor, but that's not the dimension of this topic that I am concerned with. My concern, my problem with this empirical question is X or Y or Z. So it gives someone the opposite of that lost feeling. It gives them an internal compass that still lets them write what they're writing, but to really know. And the other, the other value to this is that it also helps a, a researcher figure out who their fellow travelers are. Because the thing that really connects us as scholars far more than topics are problems. 
And so, you know, a person who studies secessionists in California and the Civil War, you know, might have much more in common with, I don't know, those who, you know, those who study royalists and, and, and defenders of the King of England during the American Revolutionary War, that sort of contradiction, than they might with uh, with some other dimension of Californian history. There might be some aspect of Ottoman history or German history or Russian history where, where a researcher is actually grappling with a comparable problem, whatever that problem is, where you would have much more to say with that scholar and much more to learn about their writing and have take inspiration than you would just to be trapped in the topic land part of the library or part of the bookstore where you're just reading one book after the next, after the next of California and the Civil War, California and Civil War, California and Civil War. You got to read that stuff. But people that get trapped in topic land get really confused that they, they, they get a hundred books from the library on California in the, you know, in the Civil War or feng shui, and they don't understand why 99% of it bores them to tears. They don't get it like I'm supposed to be interested in this stuff. I'm not. What is wrong with me? Uh, and the simple fact is, is that yes, the topic is the same, but the problem of that author might be radically different. And there's another way that people often get trapped in topic land. And again, it's really crushing that this happens very early in the research uh, project. So if you're writing a thesis or sometimes even a term paper, one of the first things you're told to do is to write a literature review, write a lit review, right? Where you get all of the studies on your topic together. And it's very easy for people to just remain trapped in topic land. Uh, just yesterday, I, I did an experimental search on YouTube, just typing in literature review. And I come across there are many, many videos with like a million uh, views that have their like three minute advice on how to write a literature review. So this is something that people are doing all the time. And there's still all these smart, hungry, um, early career researchers trying to figure this stuff out. And a lot of the advice is good, right? They'll say things like, you know, a, a literature review is not a neutral navigation or summary, right? You you should have an angle here. But uh, obviously, you can just end up staying within your field, within your topic. You can never, never find the problem. And I think there's also a fundamental problem with the metaphor that is often used of you need to find a gap in the literature and then fill it. Right. How, you know, gap in the literature, gap in the literature. And so everybody is like positioning themselves to be a gap filler. And one thing that Tom and I point out in the book is that the number of gaps in knowledge or in any field are just infinite. And so if you set yourself up to fill this gap or that gap, it still totally begs the question of why that one, you know, and what, what is in it for you. And so I think many, many researchers just skip that part of saying, you know, what is in it for me? And so we're essentially making the argument that you really need to figure that out. And sometimes there are ways that you can cut through this by you know, engaging with a primary source and saying, hey, you know, I, I had read this story, I really liked it, and then I discovered there's a different edition that's very different. You know, you, you have a conversation with yourself or with your sounding board about like, you know, what do I wonder about this thing that I have noticed? So often just beginning with what you've noticed that is really articulated with you and your kind of selfhood and your engagement with this huge amorphous field of research. So Tom, you know, if you have a student that comes to you with a topic, you know, how do you recommend that they go about transferring, transforming that topic into a set of questions? 
That's the whole ball game. Um, I mean, that that really is what it's all about. And um, well, the, the the first thing I would say is you and students resist this. You know, it's not as if students necessarily like to do this kind of of work. Um, but you have to create kind of create a space uh, for conversation with the student and really invite them to stay in that space and not just sort of jump ahead to those things we talked about of reading recommendations and, um, and well-meaning suggestions that advisors sometimes make to students. You know, someone comes in with a, a topic that's overly broad and the faculty starts to, I don't know, drag the start and end date closer together or suggest that they look at this particular person or this particular zone uh, and the student can fall victim to the idea of like, oh, I guess I'm getting there now. And in fact, you know, the student is going to be just as lost at the end of that conversation as the beginning, even if they have what looks on the face of it to be a very, uh, you know, master's thesis quality title to, you know, a dissertation style title, a 20 year span, time span or whatever. I mean, I, I, I really try to ask the student to walk me through you know, one thing I ask is, uh, can you tell me about when this 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 topic kind of first occurred to you? Like, do you remember when it was that you first found yourself worried about this? And th- surprisingly, that question has been really effective for me because it communicates the notion that I, I'm, I'm interested in understanding their story, their pathway towards it. And, I, and there's less fallback to, you know, SAT vocabulary and trying to impress me. A lot of students waste a lot of energy reapplying to the college that already accepted them, if, if I could put it that way. Um, and it kind of just says, like, okay. And so students, you know, might immediately volunteer that, oh, uh, you know, I was talking with a friend uh, last summer, I was working this job and I, you know, it just, I, I was walking past this place and I just thought, and boom, we have so much to go off of that allows me to ask follow-up questions to move us away temporarily, move us away from the topic to, you know, what is it about that moment, that question that, that produced a contradiction in their mind? Um, a colleague of ours, uh, someone we admire very, very, uh, a great deal, um, Bill Germano and others put it this way, and another colleague at Stanford said, you know, when, when you notice something, that means your model of the universe is somehow mismatched with the way that reality really is. There's some sort of mismatch going on. And we can make, you know, spend a little bit of time talking about that. So I will bring up the the, the, the feng shui example. So a student came to me and said, I want to write a paper about feng shui, about geomancy for, for the class. And it's like, great, this is a history of modern China class. Um, that's totally par for the, that's totally, you know, within within the, the realm of, of the reasonable. Uh, and I could have just skipped ahead. I could have just said, here are 10 things you might want to look at, narrow it down. How about you focus on one province, you know, whatever it might be. But instead I asked, you know, why, <laughs> what, you know, what, what, what is it about this? Are, are you a feng shui practitioner? Do you have a side job? Do you, um, and the person tried to, uh, keep it all about filling gaps and smart sounding words but we just stayed a little bit longer. And by a little bit, I, all I mean is like two more minutes, three more minutes, you know, so something that can happen in the context of a regular office hours visit. And I, I think maybe I communicated that I was not judgmental and I communicated that I really did want to hear a more, you know, idiosyncratic personal story. 
And so the student finally volunteered it and said, well, um, my mom is a lawyer. And I was like, okay, this is out of nowhere. Like now we're getting somewhere. My mom is a lawyer. Uh, she's like the most rational, systematic person I know. Um, you know, not superstitious at all. Just totally rational. And she totally believes in feng shui. I mean, like completely believes in this. And I don't get it. I, I just don't get it. So this is the counterpart of that example of that Thanksgiving fight, you know, over politics and over, you know, what, what, what is California, the concept of it, where you fight with relatives about it on different sides of the political spectrum. There's something for this particular student. There was, there was a problem. There was something that they went to bed with and woke up with and, you know, it accompanied them while they were walking around. And that is what the student actually wanted to study. Feng shui was a case of that problem. How could a rational person hold irrational beliefs where I'm the one defining the term rational and irrational, which then invites all sorts of follow-up conversations about how do we conceptualize rationality, irrationality? Is it an historical concept? You know, da 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 And suddenly then, uh, and I and by suddenly again, I mean like five minutes later. That's all we're really talking about here. I could start recommending articles. I could start recommending books. I could start recommending ways of narrowing down the topic. But now, it wasn't just going to be random. Like, uh, why don't you just choose a province and get it over with, or just choose a decade and move on with your life? It was okay. I know of scholar X or scholar Y who I think deals with this question of rationality, irrationality, um, and maybe you want to take a look at it. Oh, and by the way, I also know a scholar who works not on China, who works on like, you know, the Renaissance or works on Japan or works on the US. And they kind of deal with something maybe that resonates with you. Why don't you go take a look at it and see? And so what we've done you know, maybe that student felt like those 10 minutes were a waste up until that last epiphany moment. Cause it's like, Oh, let me get, a, I got I got, I'm a busy, I'm a busy student at Stanford. I got to get on with my life. But technically speaking, a stitch in time just saved nine because since we got to that little mini epiphany, the quality of my recommendations to the student for what to read or who to look into were infinitely higher quality than they would have been if I had just randomly topically thrown out stuff about feng shui. Um, and I've just helped that student. And that really, actually, better way of putting it, that student just helped me help them radically increase the probability that they might, the next time they walk into the library, do a search online, they might actually find the book that blows their mind, that blows up their universe in a good way. Uh, it's not a guarantee. It's not like it's definite, but we have just, you know, quadrupled, quintupled the probability that it might happen. Um, and those are the moments that we need as researchers. Now, at the end of the day, the thesis that or the term paper, the, the final paper that the student wrote was not about their mom. You know, mom showed up nowhere in the paper. Uh, so that's the key of the self-centered research. Self-centered research does not mean you write about Thanksgiving or you write about your mom, but it means that you're aware of that so that when you do write about the problem that you're dealing with, you can come out right out on page one and paragraph one and say, hey, reader, this is the problem that we're going to deal with. And here's the case. And that also helps your reader understand like, 
what is this writer doing? Because um, I, I don't know about you, but I can't count the number of brilliant, celebrated writers who it's like, I, I have to get till page 27, paragraph three to finally get to a sentence where I'm like, oh, that's what they're doing. Uh, okay, I get it now. They were just trying to hide behind their intelligence and were afraid of showing, you know, what I get it now. And now suddenly I'm like really into this and like really engaged. So there, you know, there, that's a few of the steps. And then we have some more concrete things um, that, that we talk about in the book about how to take the next step, you know, engaging with primary sources, with literature review and others. Chris, do you have any thoughts on, you know, what, what Tom said or just on this general theme of how to transform a topic into a set of questions? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think that you know, if you look at other research guides, they will go from, you know, topic to questions to a, a problem. So I think people are aware of problems. And even Umberto Eco in the very first line of his book on how to write a thesis, he's like, find a problem in your field. I think that the that is advice that is still kind of passed over very quickly uh, because the topics have such a great hold on us that, you know, it's like departments are organized by topic and you know, people's job title has the topic in it, not really in the problem. And so there's this relentless pressure from the outside world to keep pushing us as researchers back into topic land. And so I think it does the self-centered uh, idea is that you do need to have this self-awareness that you carry with you as you go into archives and sources and into uh, graduate seminars and you're debating ideas with people. Uh, because often, like the responses that you'll get, you know, I've I've tried out uh, some of these exercises in graduate seminars and discovered sometimes graduate students can be very judgmental uh, towards each other. And so one student will say, "I think I'm interested in this aspect of the topic," and other people are like, "Well, why why are you doing that? Like, why you know why why am I not something else? Like, shouldn't you be focusing on this more important thing?" And that can be really debilitating um, in the sense that it it makes people clam up. And it makes them feel um, like they can't be vulnerable. And so one thing that we keep coming back to again and again is, you know, as instructors, we want to create, I wouldn't say safe spaces because that's a very loaded term right now, but you want to create a climate in which people can be vulnerable and confidently vulnerable. It's not like vulnerable means that you are not confident. I, you know, if I, I would say actually the opposite. Like if you're willing to be vulnerable in front of your peers and other researchers, you are inviting them in to your problem in a really profound way. And that can be very powerful because that's when other people also feel like they can share with you um, what they're doing. And so, you know, there's an art not just to writing about this type of stuff. A lot of the writing that we advocate in the book is actually writing for yourself. It's not writing for other people. So there's one whole part of it where you're just doing, right, creating the self-evidence, only you are going to read it it will not make it into your study. But when you're writing and speaking uh, with other people as well, you want to find a way to draw them in. And you know, as Tom said, sometimes it's these revelations about what's in it for you that make other people suddenly really excited to share what they have to offer, whatever field or discipline they come from. And so that's one of the reasons that I think it's really useful to do some kinds of drafting um, in public, right? Even to talk about your research before it's fully completed in order to um, arrive at these types of breakthroughs in conversations. 
So some of it you can do by yourself, but we, the second half of our book is called Get Over Yourself and like how do you engage with the broader field and how do you engage with what we call a problem collective. I really like this, this sort of emphasis that you're both putting on this search for questions about how you really want it to be something that sparks interest uh, and not just something that fills gaps, but really something that is going to you know fascinate and be something that a student can obsess over. Uh, and I also think that you know the suge suggestion uh, that was made about looking for looking at different books that might not be on the exact topic but might be taking a similar approach. I think that that was once I kind of when I was an undergrad, once I kind of realized, oh, I should read books that aren't necessarily on the topic that I'm interested in, but approach things in ways that I find fascinating, then I realized, oh, well, the way that they go about asking questions could be a model for how I consider the topic that, that I was researching. Um, so, you know, my, my question is, you know, once, it, once a student kind of reaches this point where they transformed their topic and they've maybe come up with a set of questions that are really interesting or fascinating them, you know, what is the best way to refine them? Oftentimes, you know, uh, you, you mentioned a little bit, uh, Chris, that you know you have to to have a sounding board, or, or you have to you know start to to engage with the public a little bit. But but what what recommendations would you give, just in this kind of refining step? We have one um, coining that we have in the book is don't jump to a question. So don't try to get like the one question right after you have your topic. There's often a lot of pressure to do that. It's like, okay, you've got your topic. So what is your research question? Like the one question. Hopefully you will eventually arrive at, you know, a, a central question that drives your research. But in the first instance, one of the best things that you can do is ask, is like really be as not narrow, but as small and factual and precise as you can in expressing in writing and in conversation with your sounding board about what are the facts that you would like to know? What are the things you want to know about this source, for example? Like if you have a primary source in front of you, what are the things that you wonder about it? Or even if you don't have a source, like what would be your ideal source? Try to envision the ideal source and all of the things that it would tell you about your topic. And so both that, like have a source in hand, you can do this exercise, right? Write as many questions as you can, about it, a specific, discrete, factual questions within, you know, just give yourself a, a few minutes or try to envision um, the next source or the ideal source and come up with your questions about that and envision what it would tell you. Because the things that you tell yourself that you want to know, that's going to be very revealing about what is the problem that you're trying to get at. And so we have, we have other exercises in the book about ways that you can start with these types of questions and then you don't immediately jump to answering all those questions, right? If you come up with 50 questions about your topic, it would take a lifetime maybe to answer all of them. So after you have your questions, you don't necessarily answer your questions, but you might want to choose a few that you want to stress test, right? And stress testing them, make sure, like, do you have all of your variables, all of your keywords in there? Are you leaving anything out, right? There can be these unconscious omissions that uh, we have. You know, are you using the right vocabulary? Is there a, a way that you're asking the question that really comes from whatever discipline you're in, but you want to kind of step outside yourself and outside your discipline to say, what would the world call this, right? What, would, what other vocabulary or other ways of expressing this problem um, could be out there? 
And so that's when you do start to make some of these connections to your this broader problem collective that's outside and can help you think in this very kind of dynamic fashion between your particular case and the broader issue. Yeah. Tom, do you have anything? Yeah. I mean, that's, I think two of the exercises in the book that are really, that speak to this one is we, we, we use this example of a, you know, what, what happens if you encounter a, uh, an historic photograph from the Nuremberg trials in the wake of world war two. So the trial of, you know, German Nazis, and it's a picture of the courthouse and it's a tribunal. Um, and we just sort of, you know, laundry listed out in really kind of rat-a-tat way, very specifically, you know, four dozen questions that one could ask about it. And ranging from, you know, why is that guy standing up? Um, how many different nationalities are here? Where did the witnesses stay? Like, are there hotels in bombed out Nuremberg? Did Nuremberg survive? Like, did the... Uh, home, you know, did the workplaces of the witnesses that were called were stipends provided to the workers for lost pay? And just like this unending question, series of questions. Uh, and we try to emphasize to the reader, um, don't worry about meaning. Don't worry about significance or interpretation at this point. You want to take this primary source, whatever it is, and do the equivalent of just it's like a porcelain plate and you want to shatter it onto the ground into a thousand pieces. And those are just questions. And the reason you want to do that is because this introspective process has not stopped. So let's say you go, you know, you go into office hours, you have an initial conversation with someone. You're like, I'm interested in the post-World War II period, blah, 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 blah. Thanksgiving fights. Okay. I kind of get what you're interested. Okay. Wh why don't you go look at this archive? Okay. I did. I found this photograph. And it's just amazing. Uh, an advisor could kind of, you know, fail at that point and just skip over the introspective part and just kind of now, you know, try to <laughs> pick up uh, Umberto Eco where we left off and just trying to reconnect with the with the crowd. And that's a missed opportunity because, technically speaking, the student who's holding us a, a photograph of that primary source is still working through the process of why did this particular photograph like jump out at me? Why does it bother me? Why does it disturb me? And the answer to that question is, is, is not determined in any way. It may have to do with uh, concerns over fascism or Nazi ideology. It may have to do with that. It may have to do with transitional justice, but it might also have to do with um, one of those other pieces of the porcelain plate on the ground. Wait, where did all of these people stay at night? Isn't this a bombed out city? Like, are there hotels? Did they sleep on people's floors or in cots? And wow, what, 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 what did happen to the, to the, to the, to the, uh, travel industry and post-war year? How long did that take to rebuild? Like what? And suddenly this photograph of the Nuremberg trials may end up leading a self-aware researcher to writing a dissertation on post-war, you know, European backpacking travel or like the, the rise of the Eurail Pass or something of that nature. It's undetermined at that point because there's, we, we, you know, it's a, it's an article of faith in the book, but I, I've yet to see it really challenged that there is a part of every researcher 
everyone who's engaged in research, there's a part of a researcher who kind of that kind of instinctively knows what it is about this photo, this black and white photograph of the trial that's really at stake. It kind of knows that the underlying curiosity is where did all of these people sleep at night, you know, between the days of the trial. But then the rest of us, the part that writes and talks to our advisor and, you know, tries to sound smart and get jobs and stuff, that part doesn't, isn't in possession of that knowledge. So there's a disconnect. There's a part that knows and a part that speaks. And this process is about bringing those two parts together so that someone can say, I'm the reason that this photograph interests me is I'm worried about where the judges and the witnesses slept at night. Um, which is a totally different kind of project and might bring someone to, you know, read articles and books about, uh, <laughs> you know, any, many things not having to do with Nazi Germany, let for, 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 to put it simply. And so one exercise is, um, this is the don't jump to a question idea. And also we call it go small or go home, like to find a primary source. And the very first thing you want to do is shatter it into a bunch of pieces but then, and this is the part where we can start to meet students halfway and say, you know, they're like, Tom, Chris, this is all fine and good, but like, I've got a deadline and I've got to get some work done. This is where we kind of reveal the aha moment, which is you've actually been working on your paper the whole time because um, when you take that primary source and you shatter it into 50, 100 questions, and then you identify a subset of 20 of those questions that you actually care about, what you've actually done once you take the question mark off of that sentence and rephrase it and expand upon it, you've actually started the process of writing, I don't know, 500, 750, 1,000 words of your paper. Um, like that takes up part of the word count. And then in addition, when you take those 20 questions out of the 100 or 10 out of those 100, and you actually do try to go back into the primary sources and find a primary source that can help you answer that question. How many hotels were standing in Nuremberg at the end of the war? I guess I should go get a map of post-war Germany or post-war Nuremberg, or maybe there's a who knows what's out there. You're building your bibliography. And guess what? Your bibliography counts towards your word count. And when you find the answer to that question, how many hotels are left standing, um, not only are you refining and educating your question, that's something we talk about in the book, is you have to educate your questions, um, not just answer them, but educate them. But as you're educating your questions, you're also answering many of them. And those answers, once you polish them up and get them, you know, give them a nice shower and put them in nice clothes, turn into 200 words, 400 words, 600 words. And suddenly, Without realizing, it's like the cobbler's, you know, the cobbler's elves kind of a, a deal. You wake up one day and you realize that about 60, 70% of the writing that I've been doing under the idea that all of this is sort of preparatory introspection is actually the paper or the prospectus or whatever it is that I'm starting to work on. It's, it, it's, I'm, I've been drafting this entire time. Um, but that's, you know, that's a key question. I'm glad you asked it because it's not as if once you have that aha moment, oh, my, my mom is rational. She believes in feng shui. Okay, we're done here. You know, go get craft of research. It's done. Or I found a primary source. Okay, great. Go ahead and narrow down your topic. Um, the introspective work continues really 
all the way through the entire process. I'll say one more thing and I'll pause. I didn't know what my dissertation was about until a week before I filed it. And I had been working on it for six years. Um, I didn't know what my book was about until about a year before giving it back to the editor. And I've been working on it for 12 years. This is not a beginner, novice researcher kind of foible. This is just the way research works. We work on stuff for a long time before we have any real idea about what it is that we're really doing. So the introspection never ends. Chris, do you have anything to comment on just regarding working with primary sources and how to think about them and, you know, using your questions, using primary sources to refine your questions and also, you know, coming up with these, you know, that sort of list of 100 and then refining down to 10 or 20? Well, we have a chapter, a chapter three called Designing a Project That Works, where we really get into the nitty gritty of dealing with sources. So first we kind of think about, well, what do we mean by a primary source? Since it's, you know, primary sources that are really key to any originality in research. You can't just remain within the realm of secondary studies. So you need primary sources to be original, but it's important to think about these sources as being primary with respect to whatever question you're asking or whatever problem that you're dealing with. And so that is a, a maybe subtle, but I think significant shift in how you think about sources. And then there's also the practical, very practical um, question. And one that can be really paralyzing to a lot of people is how do I know when I have enough sources to complete my project, right? To answer my question, to solve my problem. And we talk about this kind of in relation to that, that uh, game of connect the dots where like when, if it's like a child's game version, essentially the dots, you know, each like a primary source are all put out on this two dimensional sheet of paper for you and, and they're numbered. So you just go from source one to source two, you just draw a line between them and then a shape emerges and then you have answered your question essentially. But in the real research world, you are still kind of connecting dots, but you have to find the dots in the first place. And you may find dot 73 before you find dot 42, before you find dot you know, 85 and so on and so forth. And so you have to have this type of productive uncertainty of trying to figure that out as you go along. But obviously, if you just have one dot, like you could draw any number of lines of argument through that. They could head in any direction, 360 degrees. And so it does take a certain amount of wherewithal to figure out how many dots do I have? And is this really a dot or is it just a smudge? Is it something that belongs to a different constellation, right, of somebody else's project? And uh, one of the things that we advocate in that chapter is, you know, as you're getting into primary sources, but even before you really delve into so-called the literature is to try to flip things. And even before you feel ready, you definitely don't feel ready, try writing out a research proposal that is essentially based on all of this introspective work that you have done, where you are now trying to address an external audience without, again, a deep knowledge yet of the field and the research, but is really motivated by your thoughts and concerns and um, your the sense of self that you've kind of been building through all of these exercises and writing. Because there'll be plenty of time later to then refine it and to um, change it based on the scholarship of other people. But that's really the moment in the book where we have kind of brought you from this 
to this very um, practical place. And now you have to take a look at what other people are saying. And you do have to get over yourself. So you're not just satisfying your own curiosity. You're doing something that matters to a broader research community. Tom, can you talk a little bit about this? What you call it a problem collective. You know, what is a problem collective? And, you know, why is finding a problem collective important in this sort of step of getting over yourself? Yeah, it's finding a, a problem collective is is a moment of such happiness in life that it's it's something that it's experienced probably most by by researchers but I also think artists and musicians and and what it basically means in a nutshell is to find someone living or dead uh who is disturbed by the same you know or roughly the same psychic irritant as you uh and without any concern with the case study that they happen to work on. So it doesn't matter like the time and the place and the, you know, the object of analysis, whatever matters less than, than the fact that you can either feel or that they are explicit, that they are, cons- that, that, that they're concerned about a problem and you totally get it. You, you totally recognize what that problem is. I can tell you my own experience with that, which is really simple. Um, and also, you know, again, shapes shapes the book in the sense that uh, it, you know, is the experience that I brought to Chris's and my writing sessions. But I found my dissertation really early in the gra- in grad school. I found it the winter of my first year, and you know, that's that's a that's a great story. That that's like that sets you up for finding things and writing grants and time to completion and all that. Um, and my. Uh, you know, I, I hit upon this very specific thing that was, you know, happened in the summer of 1954 in a particular part of China. And it was about how the, you know, basically how this team of researchers determined which minority groups would be recognized by the newly formed communist state. You don't get much more specific than that. So that's great. But then what people kind of who know me don't know necessarily is that for the next year and a half, I was still completely lost because I would pick up book after book after book about, uh, you know, political science and anthropology and sociology about one minority group in China or another, the Yao, the Zhuang, the Tibetan, the Yi and so forth. And it made sense. You know, I'm, I'm studying California in the civil war. So I got to get every book on the subject. And while I'll, I'll, I'll be, blunt about this. And I know, you know, if any listeners are listening, uh, I think they'll understand. Um, the euphemistic way of saying is that these researchers did not share my problem. Uh, the, the blunt way of putting it was I was bored. Like if, empirically, I found it interesting, but I found it interesting the way that I find a sculpture garden interesting or going to an opera interesting. It's enriching, but it's not, it's not me. It is of no concern to me in some deeper sense. And I, and I have to say that was really confusing for a year and a half because I would have coffees and, and you know, in classrooms and I would describe what I'm working on and people would make all sorts of assumptions about what I must be interested in given the topic I've chosen. You should read this person. You should read that person. And I'd have to go like, uh-huh, uh-huh, and just play along that I f- cared in some sort of deeper way. But then this literally just this chance encounter 
in a bookstore happened where I walked into a bookstore with a with a, um, a grad school friend of mine, and he picked up this book off of the display case, and he kind of, you know, lolled it around in his hand, um, and I was kind of looking at it from the side, and there was nothing about China. It was not a China book. It had pictures of those plastic name bands that you're you're given when you when you check into a hospital. Uh, those those risk you know labels, and that's what's on the cover. But there was I saw the title, and I was like, it was it was it was like I had met you know met the person I wanted to marry in a bar. It was like a it was like there was this weird magnetism. And he put the book down. There's only one copy of it. And I said, uh, if you're not going to get that, do you mind if I pick it up? Do you mind if I do you mind if I get that? But he's, oh no, I don't want it. I bought the book. It's called Class, uh, Sorting Things Out, Classification and Its Consequences by Jeff Bowker and Susan Lee Starr. And it became like my Bible and my sense of self and sense of purpose. It became the, the bibliographic frenzy that led to probably half of the books on my bookshelf. And there's not a single word basically in it about China. There's stuff about race classification in South Africa. There's stuff about how do you, the diagnostic statistical manual within psychiatry and insurance, uh, you know, firms. Basically, it was a study of taxonomy of classification itself, where classification was actually the object of analysis. And the classification of what was the case? And at that moment, I realized I'm not writing a dissertation about ethnicity. I'm not writing a dissertation about identity. I don't have a particular problem, you know, again, beyond going to the opera and appreciating the world around me. I have a problem with taxonomy. I have a problem with classification. And I've got to figure out what that problem is. All I know is that every page of this book lights me up like a Christmas tree. And every title in the footnotes makes me go, I had no idea you could study that. I had no idea you could study that. I had no idea you could study that. And it's not as if all that being lost for a year and a half was useless. I mean, I I had to read all of those empirically, topically related books. They I had to deal with that literature, but I felt lost and without a country and without a place, without a without a home. And suddenly, I had a home, and I had my people. And so suddenly I started to read all of those works and reach out and like reach out to Jeff Bowker and to, um, to Lee Starr before her tragic passing and, and to people who knew in this work. And it brought me into this entirely different literature, very little of it about China. I mean, almost none of it about China, in fact, but where I was just on cloud nine all the time. And that's, uh, that's that joyous moment of finding your problem collective. The people who share your psychic irritants, but don't necessarily and often do not share your case. Chris, do you have any sort of uh, similar experience uh, of you know finding a book that, or finding a essay that maybe wasn't directly related to your topic, but was something that helped you think about it in a informative and new way? Oh gosh, and there's there's so many works by that are like not related to China, for example, that um, really influenced my book on the age of irreverence. That uh, I was writing a history of laughter in China, and there's a lot of you know studies of humor around the world and comparative humor and the like. But one of the things that I was really 
struggling with was like, where do you start and where do you stop this type of story? If this is, if laughter is like part of the human condition, like what is, do you just follow the Chinese political historical chronology? And um, yeah, I think that one of the things that I, I finally realized was, you know, from, from reading a number of books, I think the the studies that I appreciate the most are the ones that are led by their sources in some ways that like, if you're going to write a history of laughter, the, the points on the chronology should really be about laughter events or laughter happenings or some type of change in the culture. And so that's what brought me to like ending that study with a year of humor that the Chinese press dubbed 1933. And, um, so that was partly influenced by books that uh, really don't follow uh, what is already there. They don't just kind of take the topic and plug it into an existing uh, chrono- chronology. And so for that, and for me, that was a bit of a departure. I had kind of thought in the past in much more narrow terms, I guess you could say, of, you know, I just focus on Republican China. But now it's a completely different periodization that's not driven by war or revolution or a lot of these other grand topics, but by something that is really um, from something that I noticed. And uh, I definitely uh, talking with Tom over the years has been a lot of fun because even though we're both kind of China scholars, we work on extremely different things. And I work on you know swindlers during the Ming Dynasty, right? You know, four hundred years ago. And you know Tom's working on history of information or the deathscapes of modern China, like where graves are relocated. And so I think somebody looking from the outside may think that we are kind of the same, but actually the stuff that we work on is extremely different. And I think it's because of that that like the the problems that we deal with are so different. We do actually share a common problem of like. How do you figure this out when your your topic may on the surface seem really similar, um, but the problems that you're dealing with and the cases you're dealing with are, are utterly dissimilar? So I think this is one of the the ways that our our book really reaches outside of China studies or Asian studies or even the humanities. That a lot of these decisions about where do you start and stop your project, what are the right parameters or scope for it? This is something you find in STEM. This is something you find in social sciences. This is really common to everybody. If I if I could just say, I, I, I've been looking for a good opportunity to bring this up. I think, Chris, this is a really important point. I read on, the, there was like a little mini review of the book, which um, talked about how it was kind of most relevant for the humanities. And, and I get, I kind of, I get it. You know, we're two humanists and obviously the, the examples that we talk about in the book are what they are. Uh, but I really want to make the case that um, this kind of this notion, this proposition that the best work emanates from some sort of central disturbance, and Chris and I have talked about this a lot. This is a universal thing. I mean, yes, there are commissioned. You know, you can be commissioned to do research. You can be a research assistant in which you don't have to worry about what's the problem. You know, you just do your job and 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 get your paycheck and get some experience. But if you're talking about any research project where you have to formulate the question. Um, it is, it is a hundred percent rating that the best work comes out of scholars who are aware of 
the relationship between the case and the problem that disturbs them. I had a I I I had a chance to interview a MacArthur winning microbiologist, towering figure, um, you know, top of their game, mid career, and totally on a for a totally unrelated project. It wasn't related to the book. But then just as a as a thank you, I um I shared the book with them. You know, kind of like thank you for sharing your work with me. This is this is what this is what um what I do with a colleague of mine, Chris. And this microbiologist wrote back probably a three-page email that was like, holy bleep, this is exactly what I talk about with my students in my lab. Um, I just got like 20 copies of the book for everyone in my lab. We're going to actually do like a book event about it because this is, and this person studies, you know, DNA structures and, and, and things that one would could easily, if they do not understand how knowledge production is a human venture, could really assume is a more objective side of research and a more dispassionate side of research. And it's like, nah-uh-uh-uh-uh. If someone um, decides to spend 25 years of their life uh, looking at, <laughs> you know, uh, you insert STEM-specific topic here, the same dynamics are at play. They are really intelligent, really curious people. Uh, undoubtedly, other ideas occurred to them or other ideas could occur to them. And for whatever reason, you know, this is where their path led. And the process, and, and, you know, we had this amazing conversation, this microbiologist and me uh, in a follow up. And they were like, yeah, this is, ex- this is where my stuff comes from too. Uh, it might not, it might not seem it because, you know, how can you make the case that the st- various structures of the DNA <laughs> uh, uh, molecules somehow resonate with me? How do you see yourself in DNA? Um, the answer is, is that the self of self-centered research is really, really expansive. This is not the self that is captured in the U.S. census. It does not mean that someone of Turkish descent must be obsessed with Turkish things or someone who is who identifies this way or that way is just looking for literally that census category everywhere they look. The self of problems is really <laughs> uh, just it's 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 immense, um, and someone can see themselves in biomineralization or in the structures of you know n- natural enzymes. They can somehow see a problem that bothers them, that a problem that is somehow core to who they are, and that by studying DNA, they are in some strange way studying themselves. And I don't just mean because they're made up of DNA, but there's something about it which bugs them. And in many cases, and you hear this a lot more in the sciences than you do in the humanities, bug them from the time that they were a little kid, you know? Um, and so the, I'd like to, you know, make the case, I, Chris and I have talked about this, is, is that this is not a humanity social science thing. This is not a humanity social science method. The, the examples we give are just because we have to talk from our own experience. But I would say that if you were to sit down with someone working in chemistry, aeronautical engineering, you know, computer science, whatever, uh, if they're honest, they're going to, and, and if they're, you know, a researcher and if they're honest with themselves, these things emanate from deeper places than just, well, I needed to fill a gap in the literature. So I spent a quarter of my life on that. It's like, no, you didn't. Um, 
And if you did, I, I'm sorry for you, but I don't believe that you did. I think something brought you um, to it. So wanted to, wanted to just you know underscore that while we had a chance. I think uh, you know the the point you bring up is it's reminding me I had a conversation a couple of days ago with a friend of mine who's uh, getting a uh, advanced degree in bioethics, and they were explaining how you know this kind of there's a sort of a framework in bioethics. It's kind of similar to like utilitarianism versus deontology. And they were just explaining to me how they are starting to, they just see this framework at, at play in so many different ways in their life. And that they're constantly like, like they were, you know, making sandwiches, uh, you know, with, with their boyfriend and family. And they were like, oh, the sandwich making, it reminded me of this problem in bio that, that I was read in a bioethics paper. So, you know, I think, I think it's true. Like you want something, uh, you definitely want something that is going to obsess you. And then it's sort of been a process of, uh, of defamiliarizing it a little bit uh, so that it becomes something that's intelligible. And sort of on that point, you know, and, and Chris, may, maybe if you want to take a crack at this first, is just like the problem of jargon. I think that a lot of people, especially young students, you know, obviously, um, you know, there's always this thing about, you know, if they're writing about something, are they going to use the proper jargon? Are they going to, you know, uh, you know, correctly describe something using some terminology that, is very niche, you know, how, how do you think, uh, what, what role does jargon play in thinking about, you know, the, the kind of the, the thesis or, or research project? In the second half of the book, we make this distinction between speaking to your field and speaking to your problem collective. So if you're speaking to your field, by all means, use the specialized terminology that makes sense to them because it's most expedient. And if indeed everybody shares the same vocabulary, it's going to work and you can have a more efficient conversation. Right. If you are in the ER room, you need to have everybody on the same page and knowing the same key terminology. You're not going to explain what everything is. But when you're speaking to your problem collective, that's, I think, actually the harder part. And so you have to use, quote unquote, lay language. But, it, you know, I think you have to uh, really put yourself in other people's shoes to say what type of way of explaining the problem is going to resonate with them. What is going to help them see the problem within my particular case if they don't share that. So we have exercises where you essentially self-translate. You translate what you're doing for these different readerships or these different audiences. And it's hard, right? It's a, a skill and we all have blind spots in that. And so this is where a sounding board can come in really useful. And um, I think that's, but I think it's really necessary, especially if you do want to reach beyond your field and find research, you know, find kindred spirits in other places, because it's that moment of resonance that can really be magical and can lead to unexpected connections. And so everything that we hear in the academy about like promoting interdisciplinarity and so on, there's a lot of kind of cheerleading for interdisciplinarity or cross-disciplinary collaboration without anybody providing the tools to do it. And uh, we all have like different disciplinary and field biases. And so you need some kind of powerful mechanism to make those connections. And so that's really like why we devote an entire chapter to how you connect with and find your problem collective. Uh, Tom, I don't know if you have anything that you want to add on that point as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we, Chris and I did it in this conversation. You know, I, I, I think I may have said CCP and instead of Chinese Communist Party, Chris said Republican China. If someone's like a U.S. historian, they're like, wait a minute, there are Republicans in China. It's just it's so ingrained in our in our field training um, 
that, you know, we wrote a book about it and we do it. And it's just a very natural thing to do. And uh, the reason that one needs to fight against it uh, is both intellectual and pragmatic. So pragmatics first. Let's say you're giving a job talk. Um, let's put it in a really kind of high stakes environment. And you are, uh, you know, you're an anthropologist of Egypt. And there are two people in the room who are, you know, experts in that world. And the other 30 are not. They're all intelligent people. If you just jargon all day um, and use all of this coded language that only two of the 30 people in the room understand, you're not going to get that job. Like you, No one's going to kind of understand what the stakes are. They're going to feel, they're not even going to realize it, but they're going to feel unwelcomed to your intellectual world. They're going to feel like they don't, you're not inviting them in. Um, just like all your future students who are just not like experts. all your future students, they're not, they're just not going to care. Uh, yeah, there are going to be perceptions made about your ability possibly in the classroom. So pragmatically, there's a real good reason to train oneself to either, um, kind of double click on those, those terms and, and unpack them. So never say CCP or say Chinese communist party or catch yourself and then rephrase, but it's also a more generous orientation generally as a scholar. By far the best talks I've ever seen in my life are ones in which the person uh, threads the needle between not boring the specialists in the room, but not um, alienating the, 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 the uninitiated in the room, but somehow does it in a way where everyone feels along for the ride. Intellectually, it's even, it's subtler, but far more important. And this brings us all the way back to, the, to those examples of, you know, Civil War, California in the Civil War or Feng Shui in modern China. Um, if I had just kind of gone along with those students and just, you know, played the gap filling story or go read these books or whatever, basically just fallen for the trap of jargon. Uh, what it means is that they would never have had the opportunity, nor would even realize that they were robbed of the opportunity to for for countless breakthroughs. They would be like, um, you know, a person living in a three bedroom, two bedroom house who's like, okay, I kind of know where everything is. I know where the living room is. I know where the family rooms. I know where these two. Oh yeah, there's that closet door over there. I've never opened, but whatever. Um, and versus the one that opens that door and realizes wait a minute, I don't live in a two bedroom place. I live in like a cathedral with a thousand rooms. And that wasn't a closet door. It was like a doorway to a whole other set of possibilities. Um, and we do that to ourselves when we use this smart sounding jargon as part of our thinking process, we rob ourselves. And so we, we need to remember that and I think the metaphor of the emergency room is perfect. When we are literally performing surgery on someone, we got to use this language. We can't. The, the patient's going to die if we stop to tell what everything means. But when we are in the quiet of our own mind and the quiet of our own, you know, at our own desk and working through things in that vulnerable, open, I don't know mind kind of way, you are not in an in, a, in an operating room, you know, and that that is the last place that jargon shortcuts should ever show up uh, because what all those jargon shortcuts are doing when you're thinking through something on your own or maybe with a sounding board, all they're doing in that context is robbing you of 
opportunity after opportunity and after opportunity. And we just don't know. Is that a closet door or is that, you know, the doorway to the other wing of the mansion? We, you just don't know until you open it. But when you use jargon, you, you kind of don't even know the door is there. Um, and so there's intellectual and, and pragmatic reasons. We call it, you know, killing your acronyms. You got to kill your acronyms. I'm, you know, I'm wondering, you know, once, once a person, a student or a researcher has sort of found themselves in this place, you know, like, like you said, like, you know, the two rooms versus the cathedral, you know, how, how do you actually find yourself, you know, walking through the cathedral and finding, <laughs> finding all the, all, all the, the good secondary sources that are going to, you know, need to go into uh, a really thoughtful thesis or dissertation? And that's uh, a Tom, huge question. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say Chris and I are, are at work on a few different projects right now. And, you know, one of them is related to how you finish. Um, because opening that, opening what you thought was a closet door and finding another, uh, like a wing of a cathedral, uh, let's not be, let's not, <laughs> let's not lie. It's a terrifying feeling. It's, it's a mixture of elation and horror when you discover a new archive, you know, you ran a search using a new keyword that you had never used before. And suddenly you find that Cornell special collections has like a thousand boxes on something. It's a mixture of like, this is the greatest day and the worst day of my life. Because now it's, I'm so far from the finish line that I thought was an inch, you know, an inch in front of my nose. Um, that's a, you know, I would say, I don't know if Chris, you feel the same way. But that's a related, but a slightly different, different challenge of research, which there is equally little about. Everyone thinks that, you know, people know how to start research and kind of everyone <laughs> assumes with the exception of uh, Bill Germano, whose recent book is just amazing. But there's a lot of assumptions that people just instinctively know when projects are over. Um, and in fact, those two ends, the beginning and the end of projects uh, are the places where I would guess the vast majority of researchers, people who could be amazing researchers get lost and for whom there is so little guidance out there. So it is a project that Chris and I are working on as we speak. Uh, what is that Bill Germano's book called just for audience? On revision. On revision. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, Chris, do you have anything that you want to add to what Tom was saying? I would say that I... For for us, research is life in some ways. We think it's a really nice nice way of engaging with life to have this uh, research mindset uh, that's kind of probing, that's engaged, that is, again, recognizing and respecting a lot of differences and not feeling like you have to embrace everybody else's problem as your own, but that you can make a contribution yourself uh, based on what really fires you up. And that that's a really uh, liberating feeling. I think, uh, but there's still plenty of problems that we're uh, grappling with about, you know, how do you finish a research project? I think it's a, a natural one. How do you talk about a research project, especially when you feel really uncertain about what you're doing? Uh, you know, if your research is not completed, that, you know, that's a very vulnerable moment as well. And there's something particular about the live situation when you're not writing, but you're like speaking in front of people. So how do you deal with that? And how can you even turn that into part of the creative process of, of finishing your research? So those are some of the things that we're still working on. We still have plenty, plenty of problems on our plate. And, you know, just to, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the sort of the preliminary aspects. 
um, you know, Tom, like I, I'm wondering if there's any advice that you would give as far as writing is concerned for students. The the simplest advice I would give, and this, we try to be cheeky in the book. We say, don't worry, it's all writing <laughs> in the sense that, uh, you know, for myself, I know, but for every student I've ever worked with, uh, they carry um, a fantastical view of what counts as writing, that writing, the only writing that counts is, you know, 12 point f- times Roman font on a Google Doc or on a Word, you know, that's writing and everything else is kind of not. And what we try to point out, kind of like the, the cobbler's elves, the, the, the great reveal I mentioned before, is that writing is uh, sending a text message to yourself. It's using Siri to take a note while you're driving. It's writing an email. It's, it's, it's cocktail napkins. It's, um, it, it's all of that is writing. Uh, including, you know, taking notes, including transcribing quotes. And tr- there are dozens and dozens of forms of writing. Now, eventually, all of that has to migrate its way to, uh, you know, to a Word document or a text document in some way. But the, the, the key to writing is if one mode of writing isn't serving you at a particular moment, if you just can't get over the block of opening up your laptop, then go to the corner store, go to CVS and buy some, you know, cellophane wrapped college ruled paper. If your pen isn't working for you, go out and buy a pencil and sharpen it and see how it feels. Like mix it up, keep yourself, you know, whatever works, do that. Uh, I'm a, I am a major non-advocate, I would say. And I know this is controversial of things like, uh, you know, Evernote and these sort of these apps that you kind of have to take your notes in like one way in order to do it. I believe in really promiscuous writing and note taking where, Whatever is working for you that week, whatever you have close at hand, um, that's it. And just make sure you have a box where you can dump that stuff in so that when the time comes to transcribe it into a cleaner version, you don't lose anything, but where you're constantly lowering the inhibition to do it. Be very irreverent towards writing is the key. Chris, uh, what about you? Do you have any any suggestions? Uh, Tom, I love the kind of the, the phenomenological nature of the way that you're thinking about writing. I would agree with Tom certainly that uh, you know don't don't inhibit yourself and think there's only one white right way to write. I've been doing a lot with voice to text. That's been extremely useful for especially early drafting stages. And I don't know about you, but I get tired of staring at a computer screen and sitting down for long periods. I like to move around. I'm a very restless person and shake things up and you can't take the voice recorder into the shower, but we all know that's a good place where ideas occur. And so back to Tom's point, you do need multiple mechanisms for writing things down and then keeping track of them and then consolidating them. So there's, we're not going to get into a laundry list of, of, of writing tips here, but I can say, and I think Tom shares my feeling, like we love to talk with people about what really works for them and hear about what really works for them in research and writing. So please write to us. I guess that'd be my writing advice. Write to us and let us know uh, what you think, because we are we, we want to improve our own practice. Definitely, definitely. Well, Chris and Tom, thank you so much for being guests on the New Books Network. I'm, I'm sure our listeners will find this really useful, uh, teachers and students. Uh, the book is Where Research Begins, Choosing a Research Project That Matters to You and the World from the University of Chicago Press. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thanks.